Hello and welcome to another podcast presented by the Medical Council of New South Wales. In this episode, we reveal important information about who regulates New South Wales health professionals and what should you do if a complaint is made against you. Your host for this podcast, Dr. Martine Walker, a GP and long-term hearing member and medical advisor for the Medical Council of New South Wales. Hi, I'm Dr. Martine Walker. Today we're joined by three special guests. Dr. John Samet is President of the Medical Council of New South Wales. Hi, Martine. Tony Kofkin is from the New South Wales Healthcare Complaints Commission. Hello. And Kim Ayskoff is from the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency. Hello, Martine. In this episode for New South Wales Health Practitioners, we'll explore who the New South Wales regulators are and what they do, explain how complaints about health practitioners are managed, and provide some practical advice on what to do if a complaint is made about you. John, you're the President of the Medical Council of New South Wales, one of the New South Wales Health Professional Councils. What's the role of the Health Professional Councils and how are they different from the HCCC? Thanks, Martine. The Health Professional Councils cover a wide range of professions such as doctors, dentists, pharmacists, nurses, physios and so on. And they exist in regulation for the purposes of protecting the health and safety of the public of New South Wales. That's our primary remit. The health councils themselves are really standards bodies. They exist for the health and protection of the public by maintaining appropriate standards of health care within their various professions. That means they also deal with complaints, but they also deal with standards and they work hard to provide information for members of their crafts around what appropriate standards should be in the provision of health care. Okay, so John, what sort of complaints can end up being dealt with by a health professional council? Complaints fall into one of three groups. They tend to either be about the performance of a professional, the conduct of a professional, or they relate to the health of a professional, particularly with regards to impairment, rather than illness per se. Complaints can be dealt with in many ways. Um, It usually begins by a process of procedural fairness or natural justice and seeking a response from the practitioner in relation to the complaint that has been made. And the Healthcare Complaints Commission is principally the body that will organise for that to occur. It will then as an organisation, look at the complaint, look at the response, determine whether or not any other information may be required, such as an independent report or assessment by a third party. And then all of that will be wrapped up and sent to the relevant health practitioner council for dealing with by that body. So for the medical council, there are many complaints per annum. There's over 2,600 complaints, but in fact, over 80% of them are dismissed at the initial stage. For those that then go through, they'll have gone through a process as I've described and then the complaint will come to a committee which acts on behalf of the council, assesses all that information and determines what is the most appropriate response. And that can be anything from we're satisfied with the response, we think there's no need for any further action. It may be we feel like we need to write a letter to the practitioner just reminding them of some element of the code of conduct that we think could be strengthened or improved, or it can go to actions such as a performance assessment if it was a performance-related complaint. Uh, the doctor prescribed 
an antibiotic in a dose that was highly irregular and not easily explainable and the response we get back from the practitioner still leaves us feeling like there may be an issue in relation to their prescribing ability, then we might meet with that practitioner and assess them in what's called a performance assessment. Alternatively, it may be a complaint around a concern around an impairment of a practitioner and then there will be other processes that come into play such as an independent review by a health practitioner to assess whether in fact an impairment exists. I think it's really important for health practitioners to know that most complaints actually end up as no further action and that it's only those more serious concerns that end up in performance or health or the conduct streams of the council. John, I'm aware that sometimes practitioners worry that the New South Wales health councils are run by bureaucrats and that their complaints aren't being assessed by peers. Is that true, John? No, in fact, that's completely wrong. The health councils are very much about practising professionals as a core part of the composition of the committees which are determined by regulation. But in addition, to ensure that balance and ensure, again, that the health and safety of the public is protected and is seen to be balanced in its approach, there are representatives, as there should be, of the community and they come from a wide variety of professions. Mm, as well as peer health practitioners. Yeah, absolutely. If a peer is not represented, then certainly the council takes on the role of ensuring that it gets peer-related advice. So as a healthcare practitioner, having a complaint made about you is a pretty stressful experience. What tips would you have for practitioners who have a complaint made about them? So first of all, I, I'd like to acknowledge the stress and anxiety that practitioners will go through. It's a very real phenomena. In essence, I think it's really important that a practitioner does several things when they're made aware of a complaint. The first thing I would advise is that they avoid that temptation to immediately respond when they're in the heat of their initial emotions in relation to the complaint. I think it's important that you begin by taking a moment, reaching out, and speaking to your medical indemnity insurer to get the advice you will need to find your way through what is an elaborate process if it's one of those complaints that goes beyond that initial assessment. And we've already emphasised that the vast majority, in fact, do not. And they should look to find the support of those in terms of colleagues, family members or friends, with whom they can share that experience, that journey, and have an opportunity to debrief as it goes on. Because these processes do take time, they always involve an element of response from various parts of the complaint, whether it be the complainant, the practitioner, the independent medical advisor. They take longer than you might think it's going to take in the first instance because everybody needs the opportunity to take the time to provide a response. And that cumulative time can mean that it's a prolonged period of stress and anxiety. I think it's very important that you maintain a good sense of professionality, even though I appreciate you may be personally affronted by the complaint that's been made of you. See it for what it is. Somebody's had some form of miscommunication or some unfavourable experience through their own journey, and it's about responding to that and understanding why. Mm, I think it's really important to have your family in the picture and to have your friends and your peers in the picture because it's a time that you'll need some support. Absolutely. Mm. 
So, Tony, can I bring you in here? The HCCC works with health councils to manage complaints about health practitioners. What's the role of the HCCC and how is it different to the councils? So the Healthcare Complaints Commission is the independent body who has ultimate responsibility for dealing with complaints against healthcare practitioners under the Healthcare Complaints Act. So the Commission will receive, resolve, investigate and prosecute the most serious complaints against healthcare practitioners with an emphasis on the most serious complaints. The overriding objective of the Healthcare Complaints Commission is protecting public health and safety. It's the Commission that investigates and instigates disciplinary proceedings before a tribunal or professional standards committee hearing. So the Commission has coercive powers which enables Commission staff to obtain information, records and oral evidence from from individuals before um, investigation officers and the Commissioner and myself as well. Our remit though isn't only doctors, nurses, pharmacists and psychologists. The Commission also has jurisdiction over public hospitals and private health facilities. The Commission also has jurisdiction over what are known as unregistered healthcare practitioners. So that means practitioners who are not required to be registered under the Health Practitioner Regulation National Law. So when I talk about unregistered practitioners, I mean assistants in nursing who work in aged care facilities. I also mean massage therapists as well. We also have the power to make public warnings, and that's public warnings in relation to health organisations or individual health practitioners. If we believe an organisation or an individual is delivering a health service where there's a risk to public health and safety, we work very closely with the health professional councils in New South Wales because, you know, as we know, we're co-regulators. And working closely with the councils is very, very important in terms of managing risk mm. because, um, as we heard from John before, it's the health professional councils who have the power to take immediate action and put conditions on a practitioner's registration. The Commission plays a really important role in terms of assessing complaints, obtaining information and making sure that as soon as we obtain any information which alters the risk profile, that we provide that information to the council as soon as we can because we don't have the power to put conditions on registered healthcare practitioners. Only the councils can do that. The differences, I think, from what you've said between the HCCC and the Medical Council seem to be that power of investigation and also that power of prosecution. Can you describe the types of complaints that end up in the NCAT, perhaps giving us some examples? Yes. As I said, it's the most serious complaints that the Commission will prosecute and the types of complaints are fairly varied. There are a number of complaints where the Commission will prosecute matters for breach of therapeutic boundaries. So, for example, if a doctor is involved in an inappropriate relationship with a patient, um, as we all know, the doctor-patient relationship is one of significant power imbalance. And if we come across matters where there's been manipulation by an individual of that therapeutic relationship, where there's been an intimate relationship or there's been financial exploitation, then the Commission will take those matters before NCAT. Also as well, there are clinical matters which the Commission will um, at times prosecute, particularly those matters where the Commission would obtain expert advice from an independent specialist. And uh, if during an investigation it appears that, that an individual's skill, knowledge, judgment or care exercise in the care and treatment of an individual is significantly below the standard reasonably expected of somebody of an equivalent level of training or experience, so that's the test under the national law, 
then generally those those types of matters uh, would be prosecuted before a tribunal or a professional standards committee hearing. There's also as well criminal convictions, which will result sometimes in prosecution. For example, if a practitioner is subject of a conviction or a criminal finding in Australia or any other jurisdiction, the Commission may grant a complaint before NCAT. Impairment, sometimes we prosecute impairment matters. We're aware that the Medical Council in particular and the Nursing Councils have very strong health programs. But there are occasions when the health program isn't working and there are occasions when the health program isn't suitable and there are occasions where there is a crossover between impairment and serious professional misconduct and sometimes uh, the Commission will prosecute those matters before NCAT as well. So pretty varied, Martin, in terms of the types of matters that we do prosecute and of course as well there will be a handful of matters which relate to inappropriate prescribing of schedulating 4D drugs of addiction, particularly when that Conduct is is willful, deliberate, egregious and consistent and in a blatant disregard to uh, warnings by the Medical Council or the Ministry of Health or the Commission. So they're the types of ones that we normally prosecute. So now to you, Kim. Most New South Wales health practitioners know APRA through our registration and our annual renewal. But the role of APRA in New South Wales is quite different to the rest of Australia Can you explain the role of APRA in New South Wales? Sure. Thanks, Martine. Um, So much like uh, you've heard described from John and Tony, in the rest of the country, APRA receives and manages notifications in many of the same ways, um, with a slightly different arrangement in Queensland. More broadly, APRA supports the 15 national boards that regulate the 16 professions in the national scheme in developing the registration standards, the codes and the guidelines that really guide the standards of practice for the registered professions across the whole of the country. So we work on providing policy advice and supporting the boards in the development of those standards. We work with accreditation councils and committees to ensure that there are appropriate standards for the education of students in the health professions so they're well prepared for registration. Um, And just like the councils and the commission, public safety is our number one priority. So we're aiming to do that work to ensure that we're delivering safe and competent practitioners for the delivery of healthcare in the community. As you say, in New South Wales, we don't deal with the complaints, but we do deal with the criminal offences under the national law. So those are things like the technical term is holding out, which is really about a person pretending to be a registered practitioner when they're not. And if we become aware of those sorts of situations, we're able to investigate. We prosecute those matters actually in the criminal courts rather than in the administrative tribunal. And there are penalties for those kinds of offences that include really significant financial fines and the potential for someone to go to jail if they're posing a risk by pretending to be a registered practitioner when they're not. The other thing I think is really important to understand is that where a council, for example, acts to impose conditions on a practitioner's registration, APRA actually manages the National Register of Practitioners. So every restriction that's imposed on a practitioner in New South Wales is captured in that Register of Practitioners and published. Um, And that's a really important asset for the public so that they can understand what restrictions might apply to any of the registered health practitioners anywhere in the country. Kim, mandatory notifications are a source of a lot of anxiety and confusion amongst healthcare practitioners, particularly when it relates to their mental health. 
Could you tell us a little bit about what should trigger a mandatory notification and, and the threshold for a mandatory notification? Sure. So the national law sets out actually just a really small number of situations where employers, education providers and other registered practitioners are required to make a mandatory notification to APRA. There's a requirement to notify us if someone's practising whilst they're intoxicated or if they're engaging in sexual misconduct in connection with their practice or if they're practising in a way that's clearly outside acceptable professional standards. In terms of students, what we're interested in there is if an education provider becomes aware that a student has a significant impairment, so a health condition that is likely to pose a risk when the student uh, is involved in clinical practice. In terms of registered practitioners, there is an obligation for reports to be made about impairment as well, but the threshold's really high. And The example you asked about was mental health and people I think have been particularly concerned about the obligation their treating practitioner would have to make a notification to APRA and again that's where I'd make the point that the threshold for reporting by a treating practitioner is really high and there's recently been amendment to the national law to try to clarify that. So a treating practitioner is only required to make a mandatory notification if they assess that there's a continuing substantial risk of harm. So if a person, for example, with a mental health issue is uh, seeing their treating practitioner, is compliant with a treatment plan and is not likely to be posing a substantial risk in their practice, then the treating practitioner is completely at liberty not to tell anyone about that. It's only if the practitioner makes the assessment that there's a substantial risk of continuing, so future-focused harm, that they're required to make a notification to us about that. Otherwise, we think it's really important that practitioners are able to seek assistance um, and seek treatment for their health conditions. Mm. And that's a similar sort of principle with with the councils as well, isn't it, John, that if someone is well-managed and has a good treatment team, that, that often no action will be taken. Absolutely. We look for elements such as insight and engagement, knowing that they have an insight into their impairment and they are seeking help and engaging in their treatment. Those key elements say to us that the public are very likely to be safe and therefore there's nothing for the council to see whilst that set of circumstances continue. So Kim, Tony and John, just to finish, can each of you share with us your key message from your organisations? Tony first. First of all, the Commission is independent, objective and impartial. The Commission is not an advocate for a complainant or a practitioner. So um, I think that's really important uh, to get across. Secondly, we are protective. So every decision the Commission makes with regard to public health and safety. And we do understand that receiving a complaint can be a very traumatic experience. My advice to any practitioner would be really similar to what what John said, is that seek advice from your indemnity insurer, don't ignore the complaint, provide a thorough response, um, as thorough as you possibly can. It's really important to get advice and and not to ignore the commission because the commission won't simply go away. Kim? Yes, I think we're all going to be saying the same thing, really. Um, I would say, if in doubt, look for some advice. So... That may be talking to people, but I'd also really make the point that APRA, the Commission, the councils all have websites with lots of information to try to guide and support practitioners to understand how the process works. 
If I take the example we were talking about mandatory notifications, on the APRA website there are guidelines for practitioners about mandatory notifications. They include lots of case examples, so you can really test whether the the issue that you're worried about is something that you need to act on or not. So look for that advice. The other thing I would say about the APRA website is there are also some videos there of people telling their stories about being the subject of a notification and acknowledging, just as John and Tony have, that it's a really stressful experience. Hearing those stories directly from those who've been through the process, I think, can really help with maintaining perspective in what we now know can be quite a lengthy process. I would just say that we recognise it's an incredibly stressful time. It's important that we take a moment to just remember that there will need to now be a process that thoroughly examines whatever that notification is referring to and by engaging in that process, seeking the help and support you need, it will be the most effective way in which you can make that anxiety go away. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and experience with us today. You've been listening to our special feature on who regulates New South Wales medical professionals. You can access various links and resources in the episode description box located right here on your podcast player. If you'd like further information on any of the content in this podcast, you can contact the Medical Council of New South Wales via their website, mcnsw.org.au. You can also subscribe to hear more podcasts from the New South Wales Medical Council via Wooshka, Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcasts.